Thank you so much. Good morning. Good to be with you, as well as for those that are watching online this morning. I hope you sense God's grace, God's goodness, God's presence with you as we're seeking to minister to bring glory to God's name. Now, as was mentioned just a little bit earlier, the baptism service is now going to be held at 1 o'clock rather than 3 o'clock this afternoon. And so as a source of encouragement to those that are being baptized, love to be able to gather together and ponder the significance of what God has done in their lives, the work of grace that God has secured through the cross of Jesus Christ. You could hear it in their testimonies. One o'clock this afternoon, some information in the bulletin to be able to follow along. Well, what I'd love to do now is to turn in our Bibles once again to the book of Acts series we began back in September of last year, and we're up to chapter 15. We're looking today at verse 12 down through verse 21. And as you're turning there, a little bit of background in that this has to do, this entire chapter, with the subject of God's grace, you see where there's a dispute that has emerged within the locale of Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas have been sharing the gospel not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles. Gentiles have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But the locals in particular are concerned over the fact that they have not gone through the necessary hoops of Judaism, circumcision in particular, and other ceremonial Jewish rites. And so now it becomes a question of what constitutes true grace? What is the essence of real salvation? Does the Gentile have to become a proselyte in order to become a Christian? Those were the sorts of things that they were grappling with. And somehow, some way, in what might be the most complex passage in the book of Acts, I've got to figure out a way with you to build a bridge into 2020 living and figure out a way furthermore that come Monday morning when you've got sleeves rolled up and you've got to go to work, you're saying, what do I have to say with regard to this passage that will get me through this week? That's the sort of question, you see, that we've got to also grapple with as well. Building bridges from the then to the now. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 15. We're going to start now with verse 12, picking up from last week, where at the end of last week's exposition, we pondered that final statement from Peter in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Just as they will, the they referring to Gentiles. Which now means that Jew and Gentile are saved through only one means, grace. We've got to understand this now. So we pick it up now in this next verse. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them <coughs> among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James, now he's the half-brother of Jesus. He's known as a pillar 
the church in Jerusalem. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that's fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Application time. Whenever you see the word therefore, it becomes an application point. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath, in the synagogues. So now, like in first service, now with the next, as well as our live stream, we're going to keep our Bibles wide open, and we want to be able to understand exactly what it is that God is saying and how it relates to modern life today, as we now look to our Lord together in prayer. Now, Father, you know the needs. You know the struggles. You know, the personal issues of the health, finance, relational dynamics. You see the tears on pillows that nobody else sees but you and you alone. You are God. You look deep into the heart. You're able to observe that religious individual who has not yet put faith and trust in Jesus. You're able to observe the secularist. He's got a ton of questions about who you are and why is the world in the condition that it's in. person with legitimate questions, deserving of legitimate answers. If that's part of the live stream, speak to that heart right now. It's part of those within one of these services, speak to them right now. Father, we are not interested in human opinions. We're interested in God's truth. We're not interested in simple cultural trends, which will be old-fashioned within five minutes from now. We're interested in things that last. The Alpha and the Omega, the one we know as Jesus. So, Father, these moments to come are significant. They're important because we want to deal with ultimate things. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. And shape these wills. So, again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and him only. And we're praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Ponder the relationship of these two men that you see behind me in front of you. 
first glance, you would say, well, somebody's got something on their head, the other one doesn't. One's got a hand on the shoulder, and it looks like they're praying. What's the significance of this relationship? Relationships matter. God is a relational God. Before creating the world, there was perfect relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Relationships matter. You've got a relational God who creates relational people. And here is a symbol of relationship. But what fascinates us is that this is a Jewish man and this is a Gentile man. And evidently we are dealing with a Christian Jew and a Christian Gentile, putting words together that the media typically is unable to articulate, let alone understand. A Christian Jew? Christian Gentile maybe, but what about Christians and Jews rather than a Christian Jew? But the early church found that the first who came to know Christ subsequent to resurrection were Jews, Christian Jews. And what we find here in this powerful imagery before our very eyes is that a cultural gap, a cultural divide is being bridged by Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. For 2020 living, where there are cultural divides galore globally, nationally, regionally, even within families, it is the relational God, the triune God, who establishes relational connectedness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that can take, for example, two historic camps, Jew and Gentile, separate from one another, and build a bridge, the cross of Jesus Christ, so that there is one people, one people saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see. There is so much in terms of truth that is being conveyed relationally through this image. I want this image to remain in your mind now as we begin to develop our thinking, our Christian worldview thinking, verse by verse. Now we're going to pick up where we left off last week, where we found this astounding statement by Peter, a true blue Jew, the leader of the pack of the apostles, respected in so various settings, was able to say, but we, speaking of the Jewish Christians, the Christian Jews, believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they, speaking of Gentiles, will. Do you see now how cultural divides are conquered? Now, with that in mind, what I want to do here is to explore these verses together. As we explore these verses together, we're going to look at the extent of God's grace, starting with verse 12, 
We're going to develop it like this to begin with, and as you and I, as we consider the extent of God's grace, that it bridges all races, genders, the likes. Begin by noting with me what I'll call the personal experiences here to be recounted. Now, Barnabas and Paul, Paul and Barnabas, they've been out at the outskirts of, of where things were happening, and they've created new happenings. They've got stories to tell. They've gone beyond the, the limits of the nation of Israel. They've been into what we now know as modern-day Turkey and the likes. And as they made their way from Cyprus and then onwards into the regions of modern, what we call modern-day Turkey, there were extraordinary experiences of grace that they were participants of. They've got stories to tell. Now, likewise, as a student, you've got stories to tell. As a teacher, you've got stories to tell. Medical profession, stories to tell. Stories of grace that are begging to be told, and you could very well be the vehicle by which that occurs. You begin by talking about your experiences with grace. Peter has done it. He told them about the whole story of Cornelius, a Gentile, coming to saving faith in Yeshua, in Jesus. What's the effect of it all? Peter has just finished speaking. He's articulate. Strong, bold. What's the effect? And all the assembly fell silent. You ever been in a setting where somebody has communicated so powerfully you could hear a pin drop? Psalmist says in Psalm 62, verse 1, For God alone my soul awaits in silence. We'll call that the silence of waiting. Again, the psalmist in Psalm 109, verse 1, Be not silent, O God of my praise. It's the silence of the God we wait on. You ever been in that kind of situation where you've been praying and it seems as though the heavens are silent? Speak, God. And then in that powerful passage of Revelation, chapter 8, verse 1, when the Lamb opens the seventh seal, the Apostle John writes, there was silence in heaven. It's the silence of the universe. New creation experience is about to unfold. Pilate's pressing Jesus. What's truth? 
does Jesus ramble on? Jesus remains silent. And sometimes, silence is deafening. Einstein, he came to that gathering, attended a dinner, he was to receive an award, wasn't scheduled to speak, but biographer tells us that the audience was pleading for him to do so. Einstein stood, and then he said, ladies and gentlemen, I am very sorry, but I have absolutely nothing to say. And then he sat down. A few seconds later, he stood and then added, and in case I do have something to say, I'll come back and say it. Now, right at this moment, you see, those that had been challenging the whole notion of salvation by grace to faith alone in Christ alone have been silenced. What more can be said? They're pondering all that Peter has shared. And in the midst of this deafening silence, Barnabas and Paul now step forward. Notice the order of the names. The order had been reversed in the prior chapters. But now it goes back to the way it was originally phrased. We're back to Barnabas and Paul. Why? Well, it seems as though Barnabas was used by them to go out and communicate what Jesus Christ had done. Paul became a teacher at the bequest of, of Barnabas, and together as a duo, they had powerful impact upon the Gentile population in Cyprus and onwards into what we call modern-day Turkey. They've got stories to tell, as do you. Story of how your past and your present converge and the defining work of grace in your own personal life, as we'll hear at 1 o'clock this afternoon in the baptism gathering. They're listening. They listen to Barnabas. They listen to Paul. As they related what signs and wonders they had done? No. See the humility here? The signs and the wonders that God had done through them. Where? Among whom? Among the Gentiles. In that extraordinary passage in Romans chapter 15, Paul, doctrinally, explaining all of this, would say to the Romans, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders. And now this is exactly what they are succinctly communicating as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. We're together. We're doing an Israel tour together. We've arrived at Ben-Gurion Airport, I'm enjoying being with you. Rich fellowship together. 
got off our flight. Is it LL? Do we fly out of, D- of New York? Do we fly out of Newark? Either way, we're there. And as we're now making our way off the plane, and we're about to enter into the center of the airport, where we're going to, of course, have to go through a very series, a series of checks. There are plastered on walls to the left and to the right of us. Something of significance captures your attention. I can see it in your eyes. The leader of this organization has put together what is known as the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Rabbi Eckstein, who received his doctorate at the University of Chicago, brilliant man. And I'm looking at you. You're looking at me. We're looking at the signs all around. The airport is filled with people who are obviously making their way to take on a tour of Israel. Typically, so many churches sending people Christian tours. And so the rabbi started an organization wanting to raise funds among Christians and general evangelicals in particular, the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. But back to my question earlier. But isn't it possible to be a Christian Jew? Why the end? Christians and Jews. Didn't we see in the book of Acts that there were Jewish Christians at the onset? Why make divisions? Why create distinctions? Why not build a bridge to the cross of Jesus Christ? What about Jewish and Gentile Christians? What about Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles in fellowship? You see, the divides that the world so naturally creates, we walk out of that airport, they know that we are on a tour of Israel. We stop along the way, perhaps in Bethlehem, Or Nazareth, which is a very highly populated Arab region, dubbed the capital, Arab capital of Israel. And an Arab out on the streets asks, Do Arab lives matter? The question does get posed there, you know. Fascinating. So how do you build bridges? How do you overcome divides? Peter has shared. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they, Gentiles, will. Instead of international fellowship of Christians and Jews, what about an international fellowship of Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles, one people before God. And there's silence. And then, after a period of silence, a Barnabas 
and a Paul stand up and articulate the good news of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But you see, personal experiences are not the be-all, end-alls. Somehow they've got to serve when you know your audience well, whether it be one-on-one or in large groups. Share the gospel one-on-one, but also before thousands at one time. You can start with personal experiences, but you can't end with personal experiences. For you see, the personal experiences to be recounted in verse 12 leads second of all to the biblical promise to be applied in verse 13 through 18. And so now what we look at here is that an on-ramp is being built. Somehow you're going to have to build a bridge from the text as well as from personal experience into the audience that's now been silenced. And so, and so James stands up. Who's James? It's the half-brother of half-brother of Jesus. At one time, he had been a religious unbeliever until he encountered the truth of resurrection, understanding of who Christ is, you see. And now we find he has become what the Bible has told us as one of the pillars of the church within Jerusalem. Now, we have to bear in mind that by and large, These are what I call the people who never left. Unlike Paul and Barnabas, who have traveled far beyond Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and into uttermost parts in the first journey, more to come second and then third, they're going to have to communicate to those who have not yet left, who have basically known Christianity in Jewish traditional terms. They talk the local language. How do those who are increasingly cosmopolitan in their life experiences build a bridge into the local language and traditions and customs of the people who have never left? It started with Peter. Respected in the locale. Paving the way then for those cosmopolitans of Paul and Barnabas who who have kicked up some dust with grace. Now we need a local. Can you think of anyone better than James? He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He would pen the book of James, which is the Newer Testament corollary to the book of Proverbs found in the Older Testament. A man endowed with wisdom by God's grace. He waits till they're finished. Likewise you, likewise me. We don't interrupt when the souls are being silenced by grace and the stories of grace are being told experientially. You're going to have to build a bridge from the experiential to the scriptural. At one o'clock, people are going to have to build a bridge from their personal testimonies to the cross of Jesus Christ and vice versa. Otherwise, the Hindu said, well, I have an experience too. And the Buddhist says, I have an experience too. And the Islamist says, I have an experience too. What validates your experience rather than mine? Resurrection. 
resurrection. And so now, James, who has been gripped by the realities, the fact that his, that his half-brother is in fact Messiah, stands up. You can almost hear the pin drop. James is about to speak, and oh, is he respected. Brothers, listen to me. He says, brothers, including those who are putting traditions in front of truths, brothers, people who came out of the Pharisaic camp background to saving faith in Messiah, but have brought their traditional baggage and their customs with them into, into their Christian experience and are struggling with how to, how to relate to a Gentile who doesn't share their traditions. He looks at people across the room. There's a one accord here in his voice. Is there in yours when you speak to others? There's common ground at the foot of the cross, you see. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Hey, I got a question for you. Why does James refer to him as Simeon? What you and I have got to bear in mind is that people went by various names because it was a multicultural time period. Roman invasion of Palestine. Greek language even spoken among the Hellenistic Jews. But the Hebraists there in Jerusalem still want everything to be articulated in their own ways, shapes, and forms. But you see, the name Peter or Simeon means something. Peter is a Greek name. Simeon is a Semitic name. He is using Semitic language to communicate to a Semitic crowd. Know your crowd. When you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody and you're talking about things that matter most, know their language. Communicate in ways that they can understand. He has chosen to refer to him as Simeon. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. Not how Simeon first visited the Gentiles. How God first visited the Gentiles. And in the, in the Bible, when God visits, that means that God has intervened. God has broken in. God is doing something of significance. And what was the purpose of it all? To take from them a people for his name. Now, throughout the scriptures, the name being placed upon something or someone denotes ownership. It was at the end of a long day. It would be coming back for more meetings at night years ago. And so I'm, I'm heading home. I was in my Silverado at that point, can still remember it now. My sons had put a sofa in the back because they'd love to have 
friends climb in and share some ice cream together in relational time. Driving that thing raises a few eyebrows along the way. And I, I pause because, well, this is what you do when you're a senior pastor. There was a, a baseball game being played. And you see, you've got to slow down to take in what's happening on the pitcher's mound. It's the Christian thing to do. Well, it's one day in which I shouldn't have slowed down and taken in about 10 minutes of the game because something happened back at the home front. Because when I arrived home and I walked through the door, there were kittens. Not one, not two, three kittens that the children who are now full-grown adults, married families of their own, they brought into the house because they found the kittens stranded along V, County V. They needed a home. And I said, whatever you do, don't name the kittens. Well, Ferguson, Gus, and Jackie became cats. Kittens become cats. And years later, Ferguson... Gus and Jackie were still roaming the property. The kittens got named. Ownership. Now, what God is saying and what God is doing at this point is that he is placing his name not merely upon Jewish Christians. He's placing his name, likewise, upon Gentile Christians that his name is what unifies, not divides them, you see. As I ponder that arm on the shoulder of that opening image that you and I were reflecting upon moments ago, as the arm reflects the cross of Christ, what he's done, ownership. But now what James is about to do in verse 15 is to plunge in a little more into a promise that God had delivered through an 8th century B.C. farmer by the name of Amos. It's so good. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, James said. And now he draws something of significance from the prophetic writings of the back of the Older Testament and he's able to begin with the wording, just as it is written. Similar to what Billy Graham would used to say, the Bible says. And so now he appeals to a higher authority than mere personal experience. He's going to talk about doctrinal truth. He's going to talk about biblical promise. And now I want you to notice the I wills. There's four of them. After this, in verse 16, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. And I will restore it. And you say, Gary, for I wills, what does that refer to? The answer is, and what James is doing now brilliantly, is he's saying that the Jewish population is not going to be replaced by the Gentiles, but rather Jewish believers are going to find there is a rebuilding 
of the house of David, the Davidic kingdom. That's why Jesus entered into Jerusalem and people were crying out, Son of David. So now, in verse 16, he makes a statement with regard to the Jews. And there is still more to come in terms of the Jewish aspect in those final days. This is a promise that's not nullified. But now he combines the Jewish statement in verse 16 with a Gentile statement in verse 17 by stating that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, ownership, says the Lord, not says James, who makes these things known from of old. And then I once again pull out my Pilgrim's Progress. And there's Bunyan in his great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. And he's captured by giant despair. He's kept in a dungeon. Giant despair is challenging him to simply take his life. May as well be at liberty. I have a key called promise that will, I'm persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Now, people, you and I bump in daily to people who need promise. They need it tomorrow. You can stake the coronavirus issue and deal with the How long does this last question? What they're really asking is, what will tomorrow be like? Now you've got an on-ramp. You're able to talk about tomorrow in relationship to what Christ did on the cross where three days later he was raised from the dead and assures tomorrow is for you and for me, you see. And there's the promise and the richness of it all. And what James brilliantly does is that he he bridges the gulf, the gap between Jew and Gentile. And you see it there in verse 16 to the Jews and verse 17 to the Gentiles that this was one singular plan. This was one singular promise. This is one singular people before God. Jew and Gentile saved exclusively through Jesus Christ. You say, Gary, let's get practical. What do you do with this stuff? James is a practical man. The book of James is a practical book. As I said, it's the Newer Testament version of the Older Testament book of Proverbs. We've noted the personal experiences to be recounted in verse 12. We've examined now the biblical promise to be applied in 13 through 18, where brilliantly from Scripture he, he bridges Jew and Gentile. We see it in just two verses. Bring it home. You're rounding third. You're heading home. Thirdly, notice with me the relational unity to be developed. He's got to find a way, practically speaking now, to bring Jew and Gentile together. Therefore, 
my judgment. Here comes opinion time now. He's being humble. He's being honest with you at this point. He's building the bridge. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, don't weigh upon them the burdens of your own traditions. They've got their own. You've got yours. Respect one another. But for the sake of unity, in the midst of diversity, here are four things that stand out. Abstain from the things polluted by idols, you Gentile Christians. From sexual immorality, that carries with the Greek word porneia, from which we get pornography. From what has been strangled, and from blood, four things. He's succinct. He communicates well. And as he does so, he notes something where he could find what the Gentiles would have heard had they visited a synagogue in, in modern-day Turkey, for example. C.S. Lewis, when he came to know Christ in 1929, wrote this to a friend. When all is said, and truly said, about the visions of Christendom, there remains by God's mercy an enormous common ground. I think of, I think of the extraordinary way that Cale Thomas led Bob Beckel to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And how they have gone on tours together though so much of their views diverge rather than converge, though Beckel has now, having put faith and trust in Jesus, is also strongly pro-life. And the tour has to do with the idea of common ground. When I was in grad school, being given an opportunity to take a year off to do an internship, things were all set up that I would be the understudy to Chuck Swindoll. But Mr. Swindoll and I, the last minute, realized that our, 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 our itineraries, our schedules, our dynamics were such that it just wasn't going to work. So I headed eastward rather than westward. But he wrote, spoke at a number of different schools, including Christian schools, graduate schools, universities. And even though I would not necessarily endorse or encourage someone to study at some of these schools doesn't mean that I should not speak there and minister there or ask God to use me as I minister there because grace frees me to disagree and to speak openly without being disagreeable, even in places that disagree with me. There was a time, Gary, there was a time in my life when I had answers to questions no one was asking I had a position so rigid, I would fight for every jot and tittle. Couldn't list enough things I would die for. But the older I get, the shorter that list gets. I've learned that growing old gracefully and graciously is my life's important assignment. If I lose an argument, I should lose it graciously. If I win an argument, 
I'm to accept it humbly. The most important thing is to give God the glory as I bathe myself in grace. Do you bathe yourself in grace? You see, I look at my past, and man, I take a deep breath. I need some grace. Have you bathed your past in grace if you know Jesus is Savior? See you end in verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And now, Jew and Gentile, ethnic groups galore, global perspective, grace covers it all. Let's stand together. We need to be fixed with truth and flexible with methods. Truth is fixed by you. Methods are to be flexible among us. Flexible methods for fluid times. Fixed truth through flexible methods in fluid times. We need to put an armor on a shoulder, build bridges, and recognize there's oneness in Jesus and lead people to Jesus so they can find out what true relationships are all about. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.